Hi there, welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the week. My name is James Paniki. I'm Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MLEX, and it's great to be with you again. We have a perfect storm of big news brewing for you this week. In just a moment, we'll cross to Brussels for the announcement of an incredibly ambitious energy policy that may well define Europe's approach to reducing carbon emissions for the coming decades. And then we'll go to Washington DC for an equally momentous announcement. Rather than competing for consumers, they are consuming their competitors. Rather than competing for workers, they're finding ways to gain the upper hand on labor. And too often, the government has actually made it harder for new companies to break in and compete. US President Joe Biden there announcing executive orders that have been reverberating throughout the week. The speech signals a tough new direction in antitrust policy making and enforcement, but it also raises questions about whether these orders could be seen as impinging on the independence of the FTC and the DOJ's antitrust operations. We'll get to that in just a moment. First up, Europe's raft of environmental policies called Fit for 55. It covers climate, energy, land use, transport and taxation policies with the objective of achieving a net reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Our Brussels-based energy correspondent Julia Bedini has been leading our coverage of this and our reporter Catherine Carlson has been following aspects of the launch as well. Both Julia and Catherine join me now from Brussels. Uh, Julia, Fit for 55 sounds like a gym membership for the middle-aged, which is possibly why it's resonating with me at the moment. What's it all about? Yes, you're right, James. The name is fairly odd and it has prompted many jokes and puns in Brussels. But this is actually the master plan whereby the EU Commission details out wants to prompt a pollution cut of 55% based on 99 emissions levels across the bloc's entire economy for the next decade. So it's quite an impressive thing. And it was presented earlier this week by a whole suite of commissioners and European Commission president herself. So uh, the German Ursula von der Leyen said that the current fossil fuel economy has reached its limit and that we now have to move to a new model, one that is powered by innovation. This is what she said. And she was claiming that the plan has now made Europe the very first continent coming up with such a comprehensive architecture to meet its climate goals. And indeed, the package of proposals is fairly big and it is made up of a dozen proposals on energy, transport, taxation and land use, to name a few. And, well, it basically translates into concrete policies most of the plans that were hinted at in the Green Deal programme that was presented in the Commission uh, in December 2019. So, undoubtedly, this is a huge regulatory effort on the part of Brussels officials, which shows how tackling climate change has taken centre stage in the political debate, certainly in Europe, but also worldwide. And how revolutionary are these proposed policies? Is it something new for EU businesses or have they seen it all before? Well, obviously, the plan has been presented with much fanfare, but not all the measures have been proposed uh, are completely new to EU businesses. So in some cases, let's say that the package proposes revamps of existing pieces of legislation by, for example, raising targets and adding new elements, such as the one on deployment of clean energy and energy savings. Uh, and also rules on carbon trading that in the EU happens with the system called emissions trading system have also been subject to a significant update in the package. 
because this basically will tighten rules for the sectors that are already covered. So uh, let's think about large industrial plants, power generators and also airlines when it comes to intra-European traffic. But now the Commission has also proposed to extend these obligations to all ships calling at EU ports and also to create a separate carbon market for heating and road transport emissions. And this is quite big. And there are also other cases like the carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, which will put a price on dirty imports of industrial goods such as steel, cement and aluminium. And also in the package, we have seen new obligations to use alternative fuels in the maritime and aviation sectors. And these are all completely novel policy instruments for the EU. Well, so in, in any case, the package doesn't come out of the blue and many measures had already been announced in some policy and strategy documents issued by the Commission. Uh, but still, the nitty gritty has emerged only now and it will take quite some time before all the details are sorted out. That's for sure. OK, well, let's pull that apart a little bit. Tell me something about the, the sectors, the industries that are affected by the proposed uh, raft of legislation. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm thinking about the energy sector for sure, because uh, it will see basically its operating environment change very much with higher tax rates on fossil fuels and also new targets on the deployment of renewables. For example, the current uh, target is set at 32%, but the Commission has proposed a 40% target for 2030. So that's a, a big step change for the sector. Uh, then we have industry that will be certainly affected by the tighter rules on emissions trading, uh, which will mean less allowances and higher carbon pricing uh, in, in the coming years. And then, of course, car makers and the road transport sector more broadly are another major hit of the package. Uh, we have rules ranging from updated CO2 standards and also the establishment of the new carbon market that I've mentioned before that will cap in price emissions by cars. Um, in those terms, also fuel makers and refiners will certainly see a changed regulatory regime in the EU. And that's again due to this mix of updated taxation and emission allowances obligations uh, coming in. And finally, heavy industries uh, will be certainly very much impacted uh, with the new ETS on um, heating and transport fuels, but also the fact that industrial goods producers such as steel and cement makers uh, will face a higher price on carbon emissions under the ETS is, is, a, is a big piece of the package. And also there is a very contentious issues uh, for them. Uh, and this is uh, related to the fact that they will see the number of carbon permits that they can get for free decrease. Uh, up to the point of being phased out in the coming years because there is this new carbon border levy uh, being phased in. So overall, not just EU companies, but also exporters from third countries, think of Russian steelmakers and Turkish cement makers, will feel the heat of this Fit for 55 package. And the same goes for international shipping companies and airlines, because they will be likewise affected by the new obligations at EU ports and airports on carbon footprint um, for their fuel usage and therefore the obligations to use alternative ones. Catherine, let's bring you into the conversation here. What are the proposals that have made or are expected to make uh, the biggest waves? Which ones are going to have the most impact among uh, policy makers or policy observers in Brussels? Well, potentially one of the most contentious proposals is the plan to phase out all CO2 emissions from new cars and vans by 2035, which essentially amounts to a de facto ban on the internal combustion engine. 
Many car makers have already planned voluntary initiatives to switch their fleets to low emissions vehicles, but under the proposal, they won't have a choice. Now, for vehicles that are already on the road today, nothing will change, but the Commission expects consumers to switch to buying low emissions cars and vans once these are the only ones available on the market until a total transition happens naturally. And for another one of the proposals, a revamp of energy taxation rules, the Commission's going to need unanimous approval from all EU governments to be able to move forward. Now, that's proved too great a hurdle in the past. The last time the Commission tried to update the rules, it ended up withdrawing the proposal in 2015 because of too much member state opposition. There's a reason that this piece of legislation hasn't been updated since 2003. Yeah, and if I may come in as well, the establishment of a new ETS for road transport and buildings won't bleep plain sailing for the Commission either. There's a lot of opposition mounting inside the European Parliament, but also among member states, except for Germany, uh, which has a similar system at home. And well, many fear uh, a repeat of the yellow vest grassroots movements across Europe, as the new carbon price on fuel might well raise energy bills, especially for low-income households. And finally, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, also known as CBAM, Uh, Well, despite the Commission's efforts and narrative to make the measure compliant with international trade rules, it's highly likely that external partners such as China, India, the US or even Russia could challenge the policy at the WTO or eventually retaliate with trade defence instruments. So the EU will certainly have to play well on diplomacy and it has already carefully designed the policy as a levy that will be phased in only uh, later, so until, let's say, 2026, it won't have any effect. Okay, Juliet, now, for those unfamiliar with the EU lawmaking process, this is obviously a first step in what will be a long legislative uh, itinerary. Where do things go from here? What's the next step? Yeah, exactly. So next up is possibly a couple of years of fierce political battles in Brussels, Uh, that will have many repercussions across all EU countries and possibly outside the bloc as well, given that, as we said, many of these regulations will also have an impact on foreign companies operating on the EU market. And, well, crucially, uh, all the proposals are are just step number one in the EU's legislative process, and this means that they will have to be backed by both national governments and the European Parliament, and this process usually takes between 18 and 24 months. So, first, each of the two co-legislators has to armor out a, a united position on every proposal, and after that, they will be able to engage in trilateral talks with the Commission. So, overall, this means that it is not yet sure what will make it to the final legislation, but we'll be watching the whole process very closely here at Amlex. Julia and Catherine, thank you so much for your work covering these announcements. Thanks to the Brussels team. It was a massive effort, but you did a fantastic job. Let's talk again very soon. Goodbye, James, and thanks. Bye, James. Thank you. Julia Bedini is MLEX's energy correspondent based in Brussels. With her was Catherine Carlson, who reports on regulatory affairs from our bureau at the Paris end of Rue de la Loire, and we'll post some links to a small sample of the stories that Julia and Catherine have written to mark the release of the policy. And you'll find them on mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab. Coming up, Joe Biden channels Teddy Roosevelt to take on industry giants.
Thank you for making it this far. This is MLEX's weekly podcast on regulatory affairs. And don't forget, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And if you can, please take a moment to leave a review and help us spread the word. Now, Joe Biden has announced 72 measures in his high-profile executive orders, with some fighting words on the need to overhaul antitrust and to bring the regulatory fight to big companies. Companies that are, according to President Biden, enjoying the benefits of weak competition. Biden even had time to name-check the original trust buster, Teddy Roosevelt. To walk us through these developments, we've called on Kushita Vasant, an MLEX senior antitrust reporter, and Dave Pereira, who covers big tech through the lens of antitrust and privacy, and both are in D.C. right now. Uh, Kushita, so 72 measures, uh, probably beyond my concentration span. Could you maybe give us a sense of which ones uh, stand out in your view? Hi, James, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, Well, you and Dave can't see me, but basically I'm uh, wearing my MAGA hat today, uh, before you, before you call me out on 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 uh, <laughs> on my political beliefs, I should tell you that it's uh, make antitrust great again. Um, so this was uh, this was on the 169th day in uh, in office uh, that U.S. President Joe Biden signed this executive order. And yes, there are 72 measures. And uh, well, it is called executive order on competition. Uh, so, but it does tackle other things like trade uh, and agriculture. But on antitrust, he has uh, basically he's targeting activities in the technology sector, and he is called for greater scrutiny of mergers, especially by dominant internet platforms. Uh, and then he's um, asked the agencies, the, the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, uh, to also look at other fo- other areas. So, so the DOJ, for instance, um, it encourages the agency to um, focus enforcement in key markets. Uh, so one of them is labor markets and um, agricultural markets, for instance, or healthcare markets. And uh, it sort of encourages. So I'm using the word encourages a lot because that is what the executive order says. But basically, it asks the, the agencies to try and ban or limit non-compete clauses. Uh, which uh, affects the mobility of workers and it suppresses wages. And um, on antitrust, uh, some of the other things it does is it um, targets pay for delay or reverse um, agreements between pharmaceutical companies that would, you know, delay or hinder the entrance of generic drugs, uh, cheaper generic drugs into the market. Uh, And healthcare is a huge issue in the U.S., as everyone else knows. There's specific focus on also uh, hospital mergers. Uh, in fact, uh, U.S. senators held a hearing a couple of months ago, um, and they heard from experts on how hospital consolidation is affecting um, patients in the U.S. So broadly, these are the things on both antitrust and mergers. And Dave, there is a section about net neutrality. Maybe tell me something about that, if you could. Sure. So um, the, the the notion that... Uh, network providers or broadband service providers uh, should be regulated by the Federal Communications Commission is, is a long-standing democratic political goal that uh, was overturned. They briefly succeeded uh, in obtaining that, and then it was overturned by the Trump administration. So this order uh, encourages the FCC 
to go ahead and reinstate net neutrality uh, as it was done uh, approximately along the same lines as it was done in in 2015. And and there's that word encourages again. And, And that is the reason why Biden just can't tell federal agencies just to do these things is because the a lot of the agencies that this uh, order is directed at, like the Federal Communications Commission or the Federal Trade Commission, are what's known as independent federal agencies. That, that is that they're meant to be insulated from political or direct political pressure, I, I, I should say. And they're supposed to be run by Five commissioners uh, in in each agency who who are selected or supposed to be selected for their expertise, their knowledge. And and the idea is that these independent expert agencies will be making uh, decisions that are more technocratic than political. The, the, The reality, of course, is 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 well, we can talk about the reality, but but nonetheless, Biden would uh like like uh, most Democrats, uh, has taken up net neutrality as, as a political priority, uh, and he wants the FCC to act, but of course the most he can do is just encourage it to act uh, on the hopes that it, that it will take it up. Mm. And we should specify for listeners unfamiliar with the term that net neutrality is in fact the, the assumption that all services that um, are online are treated equally by the internet service uh, provider so that they can't discriminate against certain types of businesses or in, indeed certain individuals. But what about privacy, uh, Dave? Where does, um, where does that fit into this executive order? So uh, that comes in a, in a small little section, uh, again, encouraging the, the Federal Trade Commission to pursue rulemaking against unfair data collection and surveillance practices. And there's that word again, encourages, because the FTC is an independent agency. But the FTC already has underway a rulemaking project that was initiated uh, during the leadership of uh, acting chairwoman Rebecca Slaughter. The FTC has rulemaking authority. Um, it, it's The FTC has seen itself uh, for uh, 40 to 50 years now primarily as a law enforcement rather than a regulatory agency. It, it mostly abandoned or abandoned a big chunk, I should say, uh, of its uh, regulatory uh, authority during the Reagan administration uh, under the general uh, Reagan uh, deregulatory push. But it's always had in its uh, its statute the ability to, to issue rules binding on specific uh, industrial sectors. The reason why it hasn't used this authority, even under um, democratic administrations, is because the, the rules uh, guiding the rulemaking process are very stringent. Uh, rulemaking process can take years and years and years on end uh, in order to, uh, to, to actually produce a regulation, and there's no guarantee entering into a rulemaking process that a rule will actually come out the other end. All that said, the the current batch of uh, Democratic FTC commissioners have had the idea that they can revitalize the FTC's role as a rulemaking entity. And privacy has been one of those areas where, where there's been lots of speculation that the FTC might make some rules there. It, it's It's very unlikely that it's going to issue a general privacy rule for the United States along the lines of uh, a a U.S. equivalent to Europe's uh, GDPR. But it might be able to take off small, discrete chunks 
uh, of uh, of a privacy policy and uh, embed those in in uh, the the first new FTC regulations in in uh, in decades made under this authority. Mm. They're going to make privacy great again. I'm trying to work out what the acronym would be for that one. But uh, Kushida on the on the competition front. Uh, how much of this order hinges on the Biden administration naming a head of antitrust enforcement at the Department of Justice, the DOJ? So I should note that it's going to be exactly six months on July 20th, you know, since Inauguration Day. So it's going to be six months since President Biden took office and we still don't have uh, the head of the antitrust division. Uh, and uh, there are all sorts of funny polls whether we're going to have uh, a chief at the antitrust division before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving or before or after Christmas this year. Uh, but on a more serious note, it would definitely speed things up a lot if we had an assistant attorney general uh, for, for the antitrust division. Uh, but having said that, things are still getting done. So uh, the DOJ seems to be firing on all cylinders, even though there's no head uh, at the moment. You know, you have uh, Richard Powers, who's uh, a, a criminal uh, division career guy, who's sort of now the acting DOJ AAG for antitrust. Uh, and, and he seems to be working uh, with with the other agencies a lot. But obviously, there are limitations when it comes to like, there are limitations for like for for civil antitrust matters. So it would certainly think, speed things up a lot more if they if they just named someone. Having said that, there are certain appointments that, uh, you know, President Biden made when he first um, sort of took office. And behind the scenes, it seems that there are a lot of people working on making sure that the whole competition agenda is followed through. Uh, so they're, they're trying to make sure that the absence of a DOJ AAG for antitrust isn't felt. But certainly there's... Um, there's this lack of, you know, accountability. Uh, there's there's this lack of transparency. Uh, who's calling the shots? Who's who's actually doing all the work behind the scenes on on deciding what's to be done with policies on standard essential patents or with reviewing merger guidelines? So that's my answer. Mm. And how has the antitrust community reacted? By antitrust community, I also include the the well-dressed lawyers that you guys speak to on a daily basis. What's the response been so far? So specifically with respect to the executive order, um, I would say the the community is kind of split, well, as they always are. So a lot of people, at least the progressive antitrust lawyers, you know, hipster antitrusters, uh, they're, they're all sort of uh, celebrating uh, the measures that have been announced. And uh, there's a certain section that's criticized this executive order. So notably, I think this is the first time a president of the United States has given a speech this long. So there was also a speech when when the executive order was signed and you had the FTC's Lena Khan and the FCC's, you know, Rosenworcel all sort of gathered when the executive order was signed. And I think that might have been the longest speech ever on competition in which President Biden sort of... Um, you know, invoke the the whole Gilded Age and uh, and how America needs to do better compared to China. But there's a there's a, there's a section of uh, of the DC community. I would probably call them all all those people who are sort of sitting on K Street, which is the lobbying street here in Washington. 
Uh, and they're saying that this is unprecedented that a president has actually pointed out what he needs agencies to do. And this is eroding the agency's independence. I'm not sure I totally buy into that. You have um, also certain associations. So, you you know, there, there, was, there are the farmers, there are the grocers, then, then there are, the, for instance, the Merchant Payments Association. They're all extremely happy that, you know, finally the anti-competitive practices that have been so deeply entrenched into each and every sector of the American economy, forget big tech, um, uh, each and every sector of the American economy is, is sort of being addressed, or at least there is hope that, you know, the federal agencies will address these. Dave, both you and Kuchita have referred to this uh, to, to this concern, essentially, that by being so prescriptive, Biden is in fact eroding that notion of these agencies being at arm's length um, from the White House administration. Tell us, uh, I mean, let's expand on that. Tell us about the rationale behind keeping the FCC and the FTC independent uh, from the White House. And just remind us what the FCC is. The the Federal Communications Commission. I I actually don't think that uh, Biden is in danger of... uh, eroding the independence of these agencies. It, it, it's pretty normal uh, for a president to, to encourage independent agencies to, to do something. There, there is a well-entrenched history and tradition of independence at these, these agencies. They certainly take the recommendations of a sitting president very seriously. Uh, they're, they're, they're certainly, what Biden says certainly has more weight than what you and I say uh, at the FCC or the FTC. But they are just that in, in the end. They, they, they are recommendations, and, and the agencies can take them up or ignore them uh, according to their own druthers. The reason I, I'm so confident in, in saying that, it comes down to, to the rationale for creating these agencies as independent in, in, in the first place. And, and these agencies, they're, they're the full exercise of these agencies' powers over the U.S. economy, especially the FTCs, can be very immense. And so when Congress created them, they were concerned to isolate them from direct political pressure in order to prevent things like rent-sinking or turning trust-busting at the FTC into a politically motivated thing whereby the FTC goes after the political enemies of one one party. That really honestly uh, hasn't been a problem in the United States. There, 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 there is no sense that uh, Congress can uh, pressure the FTC into selective enforcement uh, that favors one party or even one member of Congress, uh, the financial interests of a, a particular lawmaker. Uh, over the others, and, and and so there, there was that was the, the the trade-off behind the creation of these agencies is that they can get vast powers, but they have to be isolated from the everyday scrum of uh, Washington D.C. politics. Now we should know that these agencies do feel political pressure. Uh, the, the the commissioners are uh, politically appointed. Uh, there's uh, any time that there's a change in political administration from one party to the next, the majority of the commissioners will align eventually uh, with the political party of the president. The president selects who sits on the commission and presumably uh, the people that he selects to, to be commissioners are implementing the agenda of the president. Likewise, 
Congress every year has to appropriate funds for these agencies. Congress has the power of the purse, uh, has to appropriate funds for these agencies so they can work. And if they get dissatisfied with the agencies as a one-time date for the FTC, they can withhold funding. Uh, Congress shut down funding for the FTC in 1980 because uh, Congress believed that the FTC was acting too aggressively, too broadly. So it, it's not isolated from, 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 from pressure, but it is, it is, I think there's a good argument to be made that it's isolated from the pressures of, say, rent sinking and political favoritism. Okay, now, Kushita, the DOJ and FTC have already pledged to start looking at their existing merger guidelines. Could you tell us a bit about what they're up to there? Sure, yeah. So um, it didn't take long for the FTC and the DOJ to come out with a joint statement um, that very afternoon um, of the executive order. Both uh, Lena Khan, who's the chair of the FTC, and Richard Powers, who's the current um, acting uh, antitrust division head, they both said that they're going to soon jointly launch a review of merger guidelines uh, with the aim of updating them. Um, In fact, they said that uh, the current guidelines deserve a hard look um, because they're trying to determine whether these guidelines that they have right now are overly permissive. And um, they want to try and have a rigorous and analytical approach that is consistent with applicable law. So that's one thing that they've already announced. We are waiting for, um, you know, uh, the, the the actual review to come. And the other thing that they've said is they're considering a policy change. So this is the FTC that they're considering a policy change that could require more companies to agree to seek approval from the agency, um, you know, before before a deal is sort of consummated. But this is for future mergers, obviously. So these were two things rapidly that the the, the, the DOJ and the FTC uh, notably have have done. And um, I think uh, the point is not lost here that you know President Biden sort of made it a point. I think we've been hearing antitrust reporters in DC have been hearing this a lot. The two examples: Standard Oil and J.P. Morgan's railroads. So the examples of um, the you know the bold action that was taken in the early 1900s with you know the under the administration of Teddy Roosevelt when he broke up the trusts that controlled the economy which is where antitrust comes from uh, they all want to give the little guy a fighting chance so that's what they're doing on mergers. Kushita and Dave it's been a huge week for both of you I hope you get to relax uh, this weekend thank you so much for speaking to me today. Well thank you James for having me. Thanks James. Dave Pereira and Kushita Vassant from MLEX's bureau in Washington, D.C. And they've both written extensively about Biden's executive orders or executive nudges in the case of the FTC and the DOJ. And you'll find that writing at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, or one word, dot com. Now, regrettably, we've gone way over time today, so we need to wrap things up very quickly. But fear not, we'll be back in your feed next week at more or less the same time. From me, James Panicki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.